Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. We are in Matthew 9. You can click or turn your Bibles to Matthew 9. We'll pick up where we left off. Um, and Jesus is going to heal a paralytic. For context before I read, because I really want to kind of mentally pick up where we left off, Matthew 8 and 9 kind of go together um, as a passage. Um, Matthew 8 is its own kind of chiasm, so it's kind of part one of what Jesus did. And Matthew 9 is, um, has a different kind of theme from Matthew Verses chapter 5 through 7 was a Sermon on the Mount. Jesus comes and says, I'm here to fulfill the law. Here's what the law really means. And the Pharisees don't have it right. Right? You have to, your righteousness has to be what God wants, not what the Pharisees want. So he's setting things right. He defines the kingdom of heaven. There's going to be people that get into the kingdom of heaven, people who don't. And then in chapter 8, we started a set between chapter 8 and 9. There's 10 miracles that are going to show God's authority through Jesus Christ. Um, that he has authority over sickness and death. He has a, a, authority over um, uh, leprosy, over uh, sickness and fevers. And there are a group of people that are humble, and the humble people get healed. The humble people are sick on the outside, but right on the inside, versus the second set of, of stories in chapter 8, where they're sick on the inside and maybe okay on the outside. Um, so there are people that get healed and people who don't. That's kind of God's prerogative. Um, and here we see a set of stories that show how people react to, G to Jesus. So we'll see in this first story, and I just want you to have eyes to see this, the scribes, the next story, it's the tax collectors, and the next story, it's the Pharisees. So there's these people that respond to Jesus in very different ways, and not only to the Sermon on the Mount, but also to um, what he's doing in the world and these healings he's doing. So he just got done healing a demon-possessed person, the multitudes of that town, Gergesenes, says, get out of here. We don't want you here. So you got a whole town that just says goodbye to God, and they don't want God around civically. So he got into a boat and crossed over and came to his own city. So his own city would be Capernaum. We know that from chapter 413, um, where the multitudes were because of all his healing. So he's going back to that crowd that liked him, right? Um, and um, they have seen many things there. Ultimately, then, verse 1 means he went all the way across the lake with all of his disciples in the boat to save two guys. And later on, he's going to tell the story of the, the hundred sheep and that one gets lost and that the good shepherd goes out to save the one. Well, Jesus has literally already done that, right? He left the multitude to go save these two guys. That multitude rejects him, and then he comes back. Um, I wonder if the, the healed demon-possessed guys actually came with or not, but it doesn't say. Verse 2, then behold, um, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. You can just, this is just a movie scene. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk? 
But as they know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Arise and take up your bed and go to your house. And he arose and he departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and they glorified God who had given such power to men. The word marveled was used in the last chapter too. It's almost like a chapter marker for Matthew um, in the kind of marveling that happens and what marvels. But here they're seeing God's power not only to have a paralytic get up and walk. The whole point of this story is that he's forgiving sins. So we're starting a new chapter in the book of Matthew and there's a new kind of topic thread that Matthew picks up here, which is that he is not, he also has power over this spiritual world. So the paralytic healing is a demonstration of that power. It says in verse two, when Jesus saw their faith, uh, this is plural, he's talking about the paralytic's friends. I think this is important because we get messed up over this idea of healing in the church. It's not the faith of the paralytic that Jesus sees, it's the faith of his friends, which is a huge kind of passage that lends credence to intercessory prayer. When we pray for others, there is a point to that because God can see and heal based on the faith of other people. The centurion was asking on behalf of his servant too, and the servant got healed, but there's no evidence of the servant's faith in that passage either. Um, it's, he says, son, good of, be of good cheer. A, a term of affection for a teacher or an elder to say to somebody younger would be daughter or son. Um, and and, and, and it's, not that there, it's not that he's literally related to the person, um, but it's an intercession kind of thing. He says, your sins are forgiven you, and the, um, the degree to which he can do that is a claim to Messiahship. Um, Jesus shows, I, I think it's interesting, the paralytic comes through the roof and he says, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus puts the primary concern on the primary problem. The primary problem was not that he was paralyzed. It was not his health condition, right, Steph? Right? It's not about your health, it's about your heart. And we saw that in the last chapter a lot. Um, notice he doesn't actually heal the paralysis. And of course, Jesus knows what's going on. He knows what he's going to do in this situation. Um, but he doesn't heal the paralysis. He, he forgives sins. Uh, even though it's clear that the whole point of this was the paralysis. Um, Jesus knowing their thoughts is, is uh, you know, it's funny because we're doing Samuel in the evenings and Hannah's prayer, when she goes to the temple, she just prays within herself. And we see that God hears Hannah's prayer. So when Matthew points out that he knew their thoughts in verse 4, um, he's pointing out that this is, this is something God can do. God reads minds, but husbands don't. So it is something where even when the, what's inside the heart is negative in this case, uh, Jesus being able to read their mind is something that is a messianic or a godlike practice. That said, there's tons of kind of, you know, you get soothsayers and gypsies that claim to read minds too. Um, so we, we see in this passage, even though it's in their hearts, that it's the first direct opposition to Jesus's ministry. And this chapter nine is about opposition. It really is. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And the last two are, blessed are those that are persecuted. So Jesus, as he goes through chapter 8, is modeling what he talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's going to model the reaction to persecution. So you can break down this chapter in a lot of ways that we don't have time for, even though settle in like it's going to be a long one today. But one of the ways to break down this chapter is the degree to which the persecution goes from in their hearts to outright defiance verbally and publicly. Like it's progressive and it grows over time as Jesus continues to do it. Another way to break down the chapter is to look at each of those opposition points and then look at how Jesus reacts to each one. 
He ignores them, he ignores them, he ignores them, and then he starts to respond to them later on in the chapter. So his response is progressive too. Um, either way, he says, it says this man blasphemes. Uh, this is an interesting accusation that they make in their heart um, that he's read their mind. Blasphemy, according to the Bible, is when you deny, defy, or pretend to be God himself. So when they say this man blasphemes, from the Jewish perspective, they're kind of right because he just forgave sins. Um, and, and to say that he blasphemes because he does that, what they're thinking in their head is only God can forgive sins. But that's a lie. Um, God can only forgive us eternally, but there's lots of examples of people forgiving each other in the Bible, right? Tons of examples of that. So Joseph forgave his brothers. Jesus actually teaches us to forgive each other. If someone sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him, Luke 17, 4. So Jesus teaches his disciples to forgive. The problem with the Pharisees is they thought they were the instruments of forgiveness, right? They took over the role. So when any other man says to forgive or I forgive you or you are forgiven, they feel like they've assigned that to God and God only, but that's on top of what the Bible says. It's Mishnah addition to the scriptures. So if Joseph's able to forgive his brothers, why can't Jesus forgive somebody of their sins? We don't know the history behind this. Neither did the Pharisees. So what they're doing when they do this, frankly, they're denying the incarnate God what he's doing. So in saying that, they're actually the blasphemers, if you think about this, like from our perspective, knowing who Jesus is, when they say this, they're actually the ones blaspheming the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's, they're, they're, their sins are their own, like they've, they've made their own bed. So one way to, to, to look at this is that only God forgives, if you want to go with that route, and that's true eternally. He's our final judge. So when Jesus says this, I think they're reading him right in that they're doing that, but they're reading him wrong in that they don't recognize that he is God, in fact. So they're mad that he's taking their role. They're the ones that get to say you're forgiven, just like a priest in the confessional. You know, they, they like that job that they've taken for themselves. Um, but they're adding to the word when they do it. So forgiving of sin has to do with who's wronged. So in this part, just another read on this situation. If they just busted through the roof and brought the paralytic down, that's damaging someone else's property. So it could be Jesus just said, your sins are forgiven, as in don't worry about the roof. It's all good, right? So you see in that situation, even if Jesus is saying a very minimal forgiveness of sins, sins are forgiven by the one who has been wronged, right? So in that particular situation, we get a feel for how anxious the Pharisees were to find wrong in this guy. Like they didn't like him. And anything he could say or do that they could jump on, they're there. And, and I see, I think that's in the passage too, because it says, at once, some of the scribes. You see how Matthew put it? They were just ready to pounce. They, and here's what they're ready to pounce on this guy just being nice to people. And this is a, 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 a confounding phenomena that people whose hearts aren't right with God love to hate on the people who are right with God. And what do you do in response to that? In this particular case, Jesus reads their thoughts, which what a nice skill to have. Um, he could just have been watching their body language. Like you could explain this in a natural, because people that are like that get bristly and cringy. 
right? So he could just be reading them going, what is your problem? Why do you got evil in your heart? Uh, is, and then, you know, of course, is it easier to forgive sins with our words or to actually heal something that's physically wrong with somebody? And obviously the healing is the mere, more, much more miraculous than just saying words. Um, so he does, and he heals them. It says he arose and departed to his house. We, and, you know, not to minimize the miracle, but there's not much to explain there. I'm, I'm guessing everybody gets what just happened. Uh, a paralytic person who can't walk just got up and started walking. He, what's, for me at least, don't miss that he arose and he went to his house. When we're healed by God, one of the appropriate responses is to go home. Go back and be at rest and, and enjoy it and, and, and be there. This paralytic probably went back to his home to tell his family what had just happened. Paralytics often became homeless people in the ancient world because families didn't want to support and feed them. So they would go live out on the street in the Middle East. So when he goes back home, it could be that he hadn't been to his home in a long time. Um, and when he shows up, he wants to tell his family about it. That's a natural instinct of people who just get saved too. One of the instincts is, I want to tell my whole family about this. I'm blessed. I want to bless others. And to just take that and do it. So he rises before the multi multitude, but he goes back to hang out in privacy. People marvel and glorify God. This is what the Pharisees miss. The crowd seems to get. The, notice that they don't marvel and glorify Jesus. They see that God is working through Jesus. Jesus is God, and we'll see that. But in this particular passage, the work that Jesus does gets people to glorify God himself. The Pharisees are too concerned with who dares to take their role, and the crowd is just concerned with the fact that a guy just got healed. And you can see the plain truth for both of them, but the way in which they take that same situation, and there's a contrast here. I think Matthew's trying to show us, because in each story we're going to see these different groups of people. So, with, again, Jesus' methods of healing was just to say it, um, and, but the attention didn't go to him as a person. It went to God. I just love that. So then he goes on, and he finds this other person. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax office. Yes, it's common in the ancient world for people to write about themselves in the third person. Matthew's now part of the story. He's, a, he's likely a first-person witness to all of this, but Jesus didn't personally come talk to him yet. I'm thinking Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount and there's this scribe in the corner in really nice robes with his notebook writing everything down, right? Because he's just eating. He's a scribe. It's what he does. And he says to him, follow me. And again, the way Jesus heals looks a lot like how he calls people. And when he healed the paralytic, he forgave his sins, right? That was the first act in the first story. Here, there's nothing physically wrong with Matthew, but there's still something wrong with his heart. So when he says, follow me, it's really similar to what Jesus started to do with the paralytic. But he takes a guy who's in a bad, we'll talk about tax collecting in a sec. So he arose and followed him. Same reaction as the paralytic who got up and went back to his house, right? And Matthew gets up and follows him because that's what he was commanded to do. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, this is likely Matthew's house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. So where the paralytic goes back to his family, the tax collector, whose family has likely rejected him in, in Jewish society, he invites all his friends from work. Another natural reaction when you're healed is, I want to tell all the people at work about this. So, with, from, so it says from there, as Matthew could see from his office what was happening, he was, again, in that first verse, it says, from there, Jesus... It's likely that the paralytic situation happened right outside Matthew's tax office. 
that he kind of saw this happening across the street or he was on break from work and he went and saw it because he's saying the two things happened right next to each other. Um, so if this is a hometown for Jesus, Capernaum, that's where we're at, Jesus would have known Matthew the tax collector. He would have been paying him taxes for 30, well, not 30 years because when you're a kid, you don't pay taxes, I hope. I don't know if the Romans did that. Um, but as a carpenter, Jesus would have gone down to the tax office and Matthew would have been the guy he was paying money to. So he would have, Matthew would have easily seen himself over Jesus. Here's another interesting thing with the identity of Matthew. Jesus calls, a lot of times we know that he called some brothers, right? So there's Peter and Andrew, they're brothers. James and John, they're brothers. But there's a, second, a third set of brothers. And it's harder to see and we don't know it as much because Matthew's name changes. But there are two sons of Alphaeus that are in the disciple group right? So some of you already know this. Matthew 10.3 has James, the son of Alphaeus, not the brother of John. So there's a second James. And Mark calls Matthew Levi, the son of Alphaeus, Mark chapter 2.14. So why doesn't Matthew acknowledge his own brother? Why does he have a different name? All of this has to do with his role as a tax collector. So um, it's nice that his friends in the kingdom, in the church, all call him Levi. What an honorable title, by the way, because who are Levites? They're the priests. So they're all like, hey, Levi. And it's like this nickname they give him, and Jesus gives it to him too. Like he's one of the priests, and he would have been one of the only disciples that came from the upper class. So we got to, I mean, at some level, like he's a really distinct person because he comes from money, and that's not something that stops people in the kingdom. It's, it's the worship and love of money that stops people in the kingdom. But with Matthew, that's not a problem because he uses those resources for the kingdom. But Levi then, Luke and Mark both call him Levi. They don't use the term Matthew. Matthew calls himself Matthew, which is a Greek name, right? It's, an, it's a name that is not one of honor. Likely when he chose to become a tax collector and make money, his parents, Jewish parents would have rejected him totally. The chosen got that part right. I don't know if he's autistic or not. That's creative license. But it is definite that his Jewish parents would have completely disowned him they weren't his son anymore. So Matthew, honoring his parents, doesn't call himself the son of Alphaeus, right? He does, and he calls himself Matthew and not Levi. So he was likely kicked out of his family. So one of the things, I just, it just hit me, when Jesus brought together his disciples, he brought together zealots and he brought together scribes like Matthew. These people hated each other politically, but he also brought together brothers that were disowned from each other, in the case of Matthew and James. And, and to not miss the idea that when you look at that crew of disciples that Jesus gathers, he didn't gather people that naturally hung out at the same church on Sunday morning. He pulled people from different communities within that, that area. And, um, and Matthew, I think, still uses the name Matthew, not in shame, but out of the truth of the fact that he was a sinner and that his name changed because of Jesus, but not because of him. Matthew was an account keeper, a Roman stooge, somebody who sucked money off the people. The Romans would hire tax collectors by saying, how much money can you get from this city? And the tax collector would say, I think I can get this much money for you. But someone else could bid on the job in the Roman Empire, and whoever said they could get the most money, the Romans hired them. So Matthew would have had to have outbid his fellow compatriots to get that job. And then their income is whatever they get on top of what they promised the Romans. So once they pay their Roman quota, they literally steal as much as they can from themselves. That's what Roman tax collectors did. They had the power then and the authority of the centurion in town. Matthew and the centurion from chapter 8 would have known each other closely. 
because the centurion would have gone and knocked on doors for taxes for Matthew at Matthew's um, request. So you've got two of these characters that would have been the face of the Roman Empire in Capernaum being part of Jesus's new kingdom. I just, the way in which that lands had to be incredible on the Jewish people. So we get the three responses to, the, to the, this kind of rejection people. We already saw the blasphemy one. We're going to get dinner parties. They're going to be upset about the, the people Jesus eats with. And then they're going to be upset about Jesus not fasting. So he's doing stuff they don't think they should do. He's meeting with people they don't think sh they should meet with. And he's not doing stuff that they think he should be doing. You see how legalism works, right? The, uh, at the end of the day, they want to control Jesus, this new phenomena. They want him to be their stooge. So um, Matthew's sitting at the tax office. He gets called by Jesus. He goes from being a taker, and we're going to see Matthew becomes a giver. And we see more in the other Gospels, but when they go back to this house with the tax collectors and the sinners, essentially Matthew took his money and threw a party, a big party. And he had, because he wanted everybody to meet Jesus. So come on over. There's going to be food. There's going to be barbecue. And, and we're, going to have, we're going to talk about the word of God and what Jesus is going to teach the law. And so the Pharisees are going to make accusations. And Jesus goes out and makes a new disciple. I just love this, right? So they're mad at him. And he just goes and does his thing. It, it gets me to uh, Isaac, one of my favorite Old Testament characters, where he just keeps digging wells. When the Pharisees keep taking his wells, he just goes and digs another one. Because when there's living water, you're not at a loss for how to do new things. And Jesus just keeps doing new things. So Matthew arose and follow him. Verse 7 uh, parallels the language of the paralytic. I already talked about that. Uh, and then Matthew goes right back to healing in verse 18. The, the invitation to the party, note, don't miss that we're in chapter 8 and 9, and Matthew's collected these stories, right? Every one of these stories has kind of been a healing, a healing, a demon possession outing, and then a healed paralytic. And then this story sits in the middle of all that. The way it's structured in the, in the writing of this, and Matthew's not an accidental writer. He's, it's like this is Matthew's healing. So not all healings were miraculous paralytics getting out of beds. Some healings were sick Roman stooges throwing off the empire. And going back, now when the fishermen, when they throw off the empire, when they throw the fishing business for a while, James and John's dad is still running the business. If things go bad with this Jesus character, they just go back to working for their dad. No big deal. Matthew never again will work for the Romans. He just walked away from everything. There goes his retirement plan. There goes his job security. Not only that, Romans likely would be, they would be he would be on their list. One more wrong move, and they'd probably kill him because he's defied the empire when he leaves this position. Another um, aspect of this that I really think The Chosen just nailed with that character, I hate to keep mentioning The Chosen, but they did some things really well with Matthew. Um, but the idea that he left that job would have been unfathomable to the other tax collectors and sinners. So when Matthew wants to tell them about who's come into his life, tell them about Jesus, the, the party is big. Lots of people show up. What's going on? So... This is interesting because for when Simon the Zealot shows up, one of the goals of the Zealots was to throw off the Roman Empire. Matthew just did what the Zealots want to do. If you don't want to be oppressed by an empire, you just say no thank you. And you walk away from the tax booth. And as confounding as this is to the Romans, politically the solution is phenomenal. You want to get rid of the Roman Empire? Stop serving them. They don't own you. They can kill you, but they can't own you. 
And Matthew, by walking away, the courage is here. And, and my point of all this is this is like a healing. It's, it's, in, it's structured such that this story is right in with all these other stories about people getting healed. So some of the people that get healed are some of the people that you think are the worst sinners, like tax collectors. And this is amazing. When people are stunned when the hippie druggies all started getting saved, we're reading a great book by Greg Laurie on this. Like, this is what happened in California. This is what happened to all the hippies. They went to church, and they all got saved. And these are the people that in the 50s and 60s, they thought they were the dirty, scuzzy, they don't wear shoes and socks, they get our carpets all dirty. Those people, the untouchables, suddenly became into the kingdom, and they became touched. And it's beautiful. But Matthew's trying to say, and then there were, some, there were a couple of the people that got touched that, 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 by Jesus that weren't the unclean. They were the people folks thought were on top of the pile. So some of this class actually hear them out. Verse 10 uses the word many. Many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with Jesus and his disciples. What a cool opportunity. What an, an interesting thing that Jesus had good regard with people enough to where they would hear him teach because he was that kind of guy, right? And people that don't even necessarily follow the kingdom. But the, the fact that they would even hear Jesus out, I think, is wonderful. So now think of the inner accusations the scribes are having, right? And, and, and even some of the Roman scribes. So, but here it gets, at this point, they, they get worse. Instead of thinking it in their heart, they gossip. So here, here it is. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, we've seen that behold a few times now. Look at this. Look at how this works. Many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Today in psychology, we call this hurting behavior. This is where someone who is a hateful person, instead of going directly to the person they hate, they go to the people around them and try to get a mob of people to surround that person, right? It's hurting behavior. And when Jesus heard that, I learned that from Bonnie. When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need. I learned the term from Bonnie. I didn't learn how to herd from them. <laughs> Verse 12, when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Okay, again, the way Matthew writes, there's so much packed in here. Like some pastors I can see where they get down to two verses a week because there's whole ideas and applications here. I'm going to leave a lot of the application to you. I just want to make sure we get this. When Jesus heard that, so again, in the first passage, he hears what they're saying in their heart. In this passage, he hears the gossip that isn't coming to him directly. But he's still hearing it. Again, nice skill. Um, Jesus' implication here, and I think verse 12 is really clear. It's not just me saying this. Matthew is putting, verse 12 tells us that Matthew is pairing the salvation of tax collectors with healing. Make no question about it. It is healing, and Jesus saw it that way too. The healing that's important to God is the spiritual healing. And think of how important that is and how powerful it is. I let Jeff Sowald gives this great example of a canvas is worth next to nothing. It's what, 30, 40 bucks? But when Van Gogh paints on the canvas, it's worth millions. It's not the object that's worth something. It's what the maker does with the object. And if humans can do that with a piece of cloth, think of what God can do with a human life, right? And that's what God came for. He came 
to heal those who are sick and to create a new life on a canvas that he paints a masterpiece on. And those that get saved are excited because they're happy to shed off the shackles of sin. Those who have been saved and, and immersed in the word for 30 years, they're starting to see the masterpiece get carved. And you start to realize how it all comes together. God takes everything and puts it into this life journey. And maybe it's to just save one person, as we just saw in the last chapter. Many tax collectors and sinners, verse 9, no family members mentioned. Lots of friends. And again, that idea that Matthew would have been rejected by his family. Partially because by pairing with the Romans, he becomes unclean. And unclean is a concept that the Pharisees had built up over the last 500 years. And they really outline it in the Mishnah, if you want to read some really dry stuff. But they created all these rules around clean and unclean. Clean and unclean in the Old Testament was largely about health, like not you know, sticking your finger in a dead body and then rubbing your eyeballs. Like God knew that there were problems with that, so he gave them rules around those things. But the Pharisees took it to a whole new level. So, so how do you sum this up? Matthew gets saved and he holds a missions event. And he invites all the unsaved people to come to his missions dinner. Right? That's what he's doing. And he brings everybody in the door. There's food, there's tables, there's fellowship. I'm thinking he might have hired live music, though that's not in the Bible. But there's this image of they're having a party. And that party's all about meeting Jesus. So why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because he's hungry. Is the, I mean, they're, like, these are dumb questions. Why is he? Because he's not sullied by who he eats with, right? And those are rules they've made up. Um, and, and, and we see in verse 3 that the Pharisees are going to take issue with this because of their rules around this. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. God's mission is clear. But the Pharisees' mission is mixed up. So the, the physician and those who are sick, uh, it's interesting because the Pharisees are the ones who claim to be the healers spiritually in town, but he's, again, making a, a, he's taking a shot at the Pharisees. So the first time he just demonstrated that he had the authority to do what he was saying, this time he actually gives commentary on it, right? And he's responding to them at a, at a, at a gentle level, but still would have been something that would have gotten under their skin. It's interesting when you think of doctors or physicians that don't want to be around sick people, right? That's like gardeners that don't like dirt, right? And, and to, to think that you've got Pharisees that don't even interact with the people who need them, it shows you how the depths of sickness, the, the legalistic and the religious elites start to get into, right? And that itself is a spiritual sickness. It's a corruption in the church that he's got to fix. Verse 13, again, I, Jesus says this stuff that I think that you could miss it unless you were somebody that used to struggle with a lot of pride, right? But when somebody says, why don't you go and learn this to the teachers? Anyone who sees themselves as academically literate, when you say, why don't you go read that? That's a huge, like, Jesus just backs them off. Right? By quoting scripture at the people who teach the scripture, um, <laughs> it, it's, it's a scathing insult for a carpenter to say that to the Pharisees. I'm doing what I should be doing. Why don't you go read the Bible? So for the Pharisees, that would get them mad. They say things like, oh, that Jesus, he's just a Bible thumper, and he doesn't know what he's talking about. And they'd get all, and, But it's such a zap to the religious hacks that have been in the word their whole life, but they don't know the word. What a shame. How, how sad for, what a missed opportunity for, for, for the Pharisees. 
So by telling them they need to go read more, that's what a teacher would say to like a middle schooler. You think you know everything? Why don't you go read more? Um, so he's comparing Pharisees to middle schoolers. And, and that is, I, I apologize to all middle schoolers. Um, the years of learning didn't do a darn thing for them when it comes to what they needed to have as a result of that. So when he quotes um, having mercy and not sacrifice, he's quoting Hosea 6.6. 6. This is a, a verse they should have known. Um, but the whole point of Hosea, Hosea is a prophet yelling at Israel because the priesthood was really good at doing these ornate sacrifices, but they forgot that the whole point of sacrifices was to have then mercy afterwards. And so Hosea is yelling at Israel for being spiritually illiterate. It, when, so when Jesus brings that quote to these Pharisees, they know darn well what he's saying about them. Um, and uh, so anyways, and he says, go and learn something. Mercy, not sacrifice. He came for the sinners, which is a theme here. Um, and then the disciples of John came to him. So this is the same dinner party. The disciples of John come to him. Why are the disciples of John the Baptist coming up to Jesus? Because they've been pushed to by the Pharisees. We saw that in the last story. And they came up to him and they said, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples don't? And Jesus says to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days are going to come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and they will, not, they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth in an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. We've read this, we've, I think we've all read this a lot. Like we know these verses, right? I want to pull apart the, the disciples of John. <laughs> Apparently the Pharisees then got them to be part of this. John himself called the Pharisees, this is Matthew 3, 3 7, but when John the Baptist saw the many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to the baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now look at verse 14. The people that said they were following John now say, why do we and the Pharisees? Now they're what, buddies with them? They're all partnered up with the Pharisees? The, the disciples of John don't even know who they're partnering with because their own teacher called them vipers. Why are you siding with these people? They're not doing good for anyone. They're running around like they're doing good, like they're controlling this Jesus character, but they're actually doing blasphemy when they do that, right? It's the wrong thing to do. Later, Jesus uses that phrase, brood of vipers, two more times, just like John the Baptist did. So if we keep going in Matthew, we'll, we'll see that phrase a couple more times. So they haven't stopped being vipers because they're called vipers both before and after. What's changed here is John's disciples are, are having doubts about who to follow. Do we follow the Pharisees? Do we follow Jesus? So when they do that, that's an, an odd thing. So let's get into fasting. Fasting is a religious practice. Um, in John 3.25, the disciples are arguing about fasting. So this is a topic that comes up. In the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, Jesus talked about praying, giving, and fasting. Those are the three actions that were expected of religious people. You do those three things. So legalists are always about what they shouldn't be doing or what other people shouldn't be doing. And when it comes to fasting then, a legalist takes it upon themselves to worry about what other people are doing. When Jesus talks about fasting, remember he said you should just do it on your own. It should be a private thing. So that takes away the power of Pharisees to demand fasting. And Pharisees would brag about how they fasted, right? They'd, they'd make a big scene of it. We saw that back in the Sermon on the Mount too. 
So if you want to tick off a legalist, when they tell you what you should do, you just joyfully ignore them. And it drives them crazy because they're telling you because they really think you should be doing this thing. And that should be doing thing is something that's just human because it's about control. And if they can control others, they must be holy. But when they're not holy and they're empty, the desperation to control other people grows. So this is the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of this world. So back in this day, the legalists were all about fasting and Sabbath practices. That's what the Pharisees spent their time on. If we want to translate that today, it, it's changed. We don't sit and argue about fasting as a church. We do argue about things that are completely not mentioned in the Bible, like the degree to which we should be drinking without um, being drunk, the degree to which we should smoke a cigarette or a cigar or not, what kind of clothing we should wear when we go to church or don't. That's actually getting to be kind of a passe topic too now, isn't it? But we still argue about legalism and we still do that. Or, or one of the things I've actually personally had, when a pastor teaches the word, they should be standing up. But I'm not comfortable standing up. And when I read the word of God, they, I don't think they were standing up. Jesus was sitting a lot of times when he taught. So I don't think it matters to God. It's a legalism thing. It's not the word of God. It's not the Bible. But it's something that gets added. So really, if you look at the Old Testament carefully, fasting is an interesting topic. A key to understanding fasting in the Old, in Old Testament is to not think of it like we do today. Um, so we could do a whole huge study on this, but fasting in the Old Testament is typically done in, in, as an act of grief. Someone has died or they're about to die, and fasting is the appropriate response. In other words, my, my husband just died or my wife just died, and I'm, I don't want to eat a bite. And that's fasting is almost a natural human response to extreme grief or anxiety. So the prophets would fast over their grief for Israel because they're off playing the harlot. And it made them sick to their stomach to the point where they didn't eat. So they would fast. And that, that anxiousness over sin and over death and over corruption would be something that would so overpower them that they didn't have room for food. And they called that fasting. And, and again, don't take my word for it. Go do an Old Testament study of the word fasting and you'll start to see this. It was a reaction to something in the world that was horrible, and you would, you would react to it by not eating, which is probably good. It was probably more clean to not be throwing up because you had an upset stomach about something. Um, so there was this practice. Fasting was typically a private act. It wasn't something you did out in public. The exception might be David when he's fasting for his child, but notice when his child dies, he stops fasting. He just instantly says, because fasting is not an obligation that anyone puts on you, especially God. It's something that David did in order to appeal to God. So it's a way that we can say, I don't want food, I just want time with God. I want to pray. And I'm going to put everything else to the side that I possibly can put to the side, including food. Really, fasting then is never an obligation. It's always a reaction to sin or death. And fasting is not a diet. Like we, we talk about fasting. I did a fast from chocolate. Okay, that's a misuse of biblical fasting. That's not fasting. That's you abstaining from chocolate. But it's not a biblical act of fasting where you talk to God with what used to be your chocolate time. Um, so it's not a diet. It's not a pastime. It's not an action like that. Fasting is really just this reaction to having no food. That's actually what it is. Um, the only fasting that's in the law, that's actually in the law, is that... <laughs> is to hold fast to the Lord, 
right? So different use of the word fast, right? But that's, when you look through the entire law, the only place you see that word is when it says, hold fast to the Lord your God. Hold tight to him, right? So when the Pharisees come in with this requirement that Jesus and his disciples should be fasting, I think we should see that in context. They're making that stuff up. It's not an obligation. So, um, oh, and the quotation for the David thing is 2 Samuel 12. Later in Kings, uh, the kings started to proclaim fasts, and we see the nation starting to sin in this regard. So the kings started, 1 Kings 21, 2 Chronicles 20, the kings would announce to the nation that we as a nation are going to fast. So they took fasting to a whole different level, but that's not in the law. That's, again, humans doing stuff on top of the law. Um, and then you see most of the prophets, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, they all fast when they have something they want to appeal to God about. Um, but usually it's kind of an event or something. So when he says, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn? The answer to that is no, you should never be fasting at a wedding. Like that's a bad idea. Because if you're at a wedding, the whole idea is feasting. Can you imagine someone coming to a wedding and saying, oh, I can't feast with you, I'm fasting right now? That's offensive. If you're at a wedding, you're supposed to put on joy for that couple, not take your own selfish issues to that wedding. You're there to celebrate the couple. So when he's asking that question in light of the law and in light of Jewish tradition, he's, they're arguing with basic wisdom. Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn? And when he says mourn, that's the cause of fasting in the Old Testament. Am I making sense? So he's referring to fasting. He's answering the question. It's actually inappropriate to put on a show for others, chapter 6. So if the bridegroom will be taken later, Jesus gives his first hint that he'll die, that he'll go away for a time. Um, that had to come as a surprise to some of these new disciples. Like, wait, what did you just say? Bridegroom's going away? Days will come. Jesus starts to do some predicting here that he won't be with us. So a few things about fasting. One, Jesus does not abolish fasting in this. He says there, there'll be a day when my servants fast again. So one of the Christian practices today is fasting. Jesus gave instructions on how to do it. Two, fasting should be done in humility and privacy, a la chapter 6. And then three, um, or three is privacy, and it should never be imposed by others. Other people don't tell us to fast. We decide to fast. It's something between us and God, and it should stay that way. So when the bridegroom gets taken away, I want to show you one other thing. Hold your spot in Matthew, but if you could flip to John 3, I got to show you what he's doing. Remember, he's talking to John's disciples, right? So it's important to see what John taught because Jesus is saying something that his disciples would recognize as John's teaching when he does this. And, I, and it really gives us an understanding of what Jesus is saying here when we see this. So John fleshed this out a little bit more in his gospel. Um, and Jesus is quoting John the Baptist here indirectly. So John chapter 3, we all there? Verse 22 is where I'm going to start. I'm going to read a pretty good section here, but keep your ears open through this. After these things, Jesus' disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. And now John was also baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was much water there. And they came and they were baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. And then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. So they're arguing in this passage, right? But, and they're arguing about purification. And verse 26, and they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, this is probably the same disciples, by the way, the ones that don't get it. Rabbi, who, he who is with you and beyond the Jordan, 
to whom you've testified, behold, he's baptizing, and all are coming to him. So they're jealous that everybody's going to Jesus. These are the disciples that stick with John because they're not following after Jesus. They're not listening to John. They're not very obedient disciples. And then verse 27, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has, here it is, the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, I must decrease. I'm going to keep reading. He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all, and what he has seen and heard and that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. That's what John the Baptist taught his disciples. Probably the same group of idiots come up and now they're siding with the Pharisees asking about fasting, which is they saw it as a kind of purification. And when so when Jesus says, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn? That's the beauty of what he's saying there. He's reminding them that John the Baptist talked about brides and bridegrooms too. Jesus takes his words and throws it back at those disciples. And you get a sense of like what he's doing. This is like telling the Pharisees to go read, right? And he's telling John's disciples to listen to John. John taught you that I'm the Christ. So why are you questioning me, right? And, and basically, you're gonna, you're, God's wrath is going to abide in you if you're not listening. Fascinating. Then he gives us stuff about the old garments, right? In context, you're either a friend of the Pharisees or you're a friend of Jesus. And, you're take, and, and he's drawing a line there and asking these disciples to pick a side. And he's not arguing about fasting. He's arguing about re religion versus relationship. Do you want to just be religious or do you want a relationship with the bridegroom? Because if you're a friend of mine, you rejoice and because you should be rejoicing with the bridegroom. Again, that's where you get the idea of this wedding idea that John the Baptist brings that out. There should be a joy that gets fulfilled at a wedding. And when the bridegroom's around, the wedding's happening. So there's fence sitters. That's what these John the Baptist thing is. And it's the worst thing for a fence sitter is to have them make a choice. Pick who you serve. So they, they go to John the Baptist and they, they point out this, this idea, but you, you, you get new clothes and new wine sin. So the thing with the wine and the cloth, I've heard tons of talks on this. I'm guessing you have too. Wine, when it ages, expands because it ferments. And if you got an old wine skin, it dries out and it breaks and cracks. Make sense? Cloth, when you wash it, shrinks. So when you have new cloth and old cloth and then the cloth shrinks, it tears away the patch and it doesn't work. So these are two things that everyone would know about because in the ancient world, that was just part of doing things. So the point here is that not that Jesus is trying to fix Judaism. He's replacing Judaism with a new covenant. And that the wrappings that the Pharisees have built around the law is called Judaism, but he's building something new that we now call Christianity. It's totally new. And, but the law stays the same and the law gets fulfilled a la chapter 5. And so you got to see this whole thing as a theme that's being developed. So 
it, so another way to think of this is if I have a seed or an acorn and that acorn goes in the ground and it turns into a tree, the acorn disappears, but it's not gone, right? And I think that's the, the transition from Judaism to Christianity. Judaism was a seed that God put on the earth and it needed living water for it to grow. And what it's grown into, it's not that the acorn, it's not that the law gets destroyed, it's that it gets fulfilled, right? It grows into something. And that's what Jesus is trying to outline here. So God offers a freedom from the, the traditions that had grown around the law, and the pharisaical traditions simply can't handle that truth. They break when that happens. And that's what's happening with these people as they're running around gossiping, trying to rile up other religious people who they used to argue with. Now they're on the same team. And so it's, it, this principle of new vessels is a principle that's guided the church for generations. Catholic orders being born out of the Catholic church, uh, Protestants, denominations. It, it happens again and again and again. When the traditions get too rigid and too locked down, Christians just go back to the word of God and they do what it says. And revolutions happen. So now he shows this idea, verse 18. Where he's going to show it, this new wine. He's going to have, there's going to be a story about life. Wine represents blood or life. The cloth, it, there's going to be a story about how his, tassel, has, his tassels get touched, right? So there's going to be a story about cloth. And then there's going to be a story about blind people, which has to do with the legalists. So each of these stories is coming back to show these wedding, these this party that Matthew threw, show these people what's going on. While he spoke these things to them, behold, look, a ruler came and worshipped him. So the ruler comes to this party at Matthew's house. I'm assuming it's at Matthew's house. And, and worshipped him saying, my daughter just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him and so did his disciples. Well, yeah, they want to see this because the rules say you can't touch dead things. Now, that's actually in the law, right? So this is Numbers 19.11. So this is like Jesus saying to the paralytic, your, your sins are healed, and then they, he gets attacked by the Pharisees, and he says, why don't, why don't you just rise up and walk, right? So he says something at the wedding thing, but now he's going to go touch a dead person? Now he's going to actually break the law. That'll give him something to talk about, right? So Jesus arose and followed him, and so does his disciples. While he spoke, this happened. This is all tied together. A ruler would have likely have been a Roman, a Gentile Roman, or maybe a synagogue ruler. So it's purposefully vague in Matthew. And we have to go to Mark 5 and Luke 8 to see who this ruler was. I kind of want to know who the ruler was, so I cheated. It's not a Roman person at all. Mark and Luke both call him Jairus. He's one of the rulers of the synagogue. He's one of the Pharisees. So while some of the Pharisees are attacking Jesus, this Pharisee, one of the rulers of the synagogue would have hated Jesus. Like he would have made up his mind about Jesus. He's a desperate man at this point because his daughter just died. Dads will do anything for their daughter. But he didn't go to Jesus when she was sick or dying. Like it took after the fact. Like you got to think of the pride of this man being as strong as it was. So he doesn't show up when she's sick. But Finally, he goes to Jesus when he needs new life, when he needs that blood to flow again, when he needs new wine in the wineskin, he knows who to go to. There was no debate about the power of Jesus. The Pharisees didn't argue that. They argued about where he got the power from. So when he needs actual power to save his daughter, like he's willing to go to anybody, even this Jesus guy. And he does. And Jesus is like, sure, I'll help you. 
Um, but he's helping a broken and a desperate man that's coming in front of all the tax collectors and sinners and the servants of John the Baptist and the scribes that were riling him up at this party, and he asks for help from Jesus in front of everybody. This is a guy that has nothing left. Like, he's given it all up. And, you know, I think of that, and I think, you know, that's kind of worship when we come before the Lord and we just give him what we got. And, and it's not a lot. Jesus responding to him is responding to his worship because notice the ruler came and worshipped him. So that idea that Jairus knows this is in contrast to them calling Jesus a blasphemer before because now one of their synagogue rulers is actually worshipping the blasphemer. Like everything's getting messed up with Jesus. Like I almost feel for the Pharisees because their world is getting shattered right now. And when this guy comes in and asks for help, um, but notice the subtle difference between this and verse 8, um, where in verse 8 they worship God, but Jairus, the ruler, worships Jesus himself. And Jesus accepts that worship in truth because he is God. And it's perfectly appropriate. So Jairus actually gets this, one of these Pharisees, um, and then his disciples happen. So we start to see this pattern like of Jesus leaving groups of people after something happens. In 5.1, he, he heads out after the healings. In chapter 8, verse 23, he tells the scribe he doesn't have a place to sleep. Um, the cliff notes. Mark has more detail on this story than Matthew does. But in this case, I think it's because Matthew's trying to show something about the new wine with this story. So the last two stories are intertwined. They're about new life and about a new kind of faith, a new kingdom, a kingdom of heaven. So he goes to a rich person and a poor person. He goes out to one. She comes to him on the other. Both of them involve touch. Both of them involve breaking the law, right? The letter of the law, but not the spirit of it. We'll see that in a sec. And one of those people has everything, and one of them, or one has no life, and one has blood flowing, too much life, right? So we have these contrasts in a lot of regards, but we have a, a very consistent Jesus who is not made unclean by either one of them. In fact, they're cleansed by him. And this is important because I'm going to argue this is in the law too. This is the stuff I couldn't, <laughs> that I have to find the reference for. Um, so the noisy crowd wailing, I thought this history was great. One of the traditions of Jewish people at this period in the first century is that when someone died in your family, you're supposed to mourn them very loudly and publicly. Have you ever seen like screaming funerals? So they would hire people to do it. Remember in chapter six, Jesus said, don't be like the actors. Literally the hypocrites in the Greek. He's, he's, he's saying this. He's actually, we get to see that scene here. Um, when people would mourn at a wedding they would, or fast, they would hire actors to do it for them because it's exhausting. And these actors would come, and that was their job. It was a career. They would come to funerals and yell and scream so that they were yelled and screamed for. There's records in Roman records where when Roman generals died, they had already prepaid off entire cities to scream for them and wail them so that they would be mourned. One of the big curses in, in Roman area is that when you die, no one will mourn you. No one will cry after you. So the Mishnah says there's rules that the Pharisees made around this. The rules of the Pharisees were that at every funeral, even for poor people, there should be at least two flutes and there should be one wailer. So even for the poorest of people, two flutes and one wailer. 
And then they probably had good friends that got paid to do that. And so they created their own little industry. This is like insurance. It just lives off of other people's business. And we have a crowd of people, which indicates there's wealth. We know this is a ruler. Um, it's a profit business for them. And it's an old wineskin. This practice is stupid. And it doesn't make any sense. So what do you do if you want to wreck a funeral? Resurrect the dead person. That pretty much ends the funeral. And that's what Jesus does. So they ridicule him, which offers some historicity. Um, the speed at which they go to, from wailing to ridicule shows just what big a hypocrites they were. They weren't crying for real. This was fake crying, and that's why they're able to ridicule him so quick. Um, and if you have too many resurrection goings, going around, that's going to ruin the whole industry. It's just going to mess everything up. Um, notice that Jesus ignores the ridicule in this case. He just walks past him. Um, he accepts the worship in verse 18. He accepts the touch in verse 22. And he puts the crowd outside in verse 25. He's not about the show. But he is willing to accept worship, but he's not willing to ask for it. I love that about Jesus. There's a humility even in our God. So the girl arose. <laughs> so Jesus actually heals somebody. This looks a lot like the, the paralytic. Um, there's a difference between saying things and actually doing things. Um, I, I'm touched when I see people in the ministry that actually do things. When we pulled out of Afghanistan, um, there's over 200 people that were left in Afghanistan, left behind in Afghanistan. And some of our brothers in the Calvary movement said, we can't let that go. So one of them happened to know former Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, started calling their friends, and they started to put together squads that would go into Afghanistan from the south and pull people out. And they called out to the church and said, hey, can anybody help with that? And the Calvary as a movement has helped that ministry out. And since they started going in, they've brought over 200 people out of Afghanistan. Those guys, you know, if they get back, and I, that's new wine and new wineskins. They're actually doing stuff to save people. And to me, that blows me away. And I'm happy to be part of a group of people that do that kind of things for people. So that idea that when Jesus resurrects somebody, he's actually doing what the Pharisees just did never and couldn't do. And they don't have the power to do it. Clearly establishing who's in charge. Let that sink in a little bit. There's new life in Jesus, and there's new wine in the new wineskin, and then he goes out and does it. And he puts new wine into that little girl. He gives her new life, right? And then the cloth that gets touched by Jesus, you know what? There's a new cloth, too. And it, this whole relationship that's there, Jesus walks out and does that. Here's the deal of Christianity. Uh, there's multiple resurrections prior to Jesus because of Jesus, but this is the key idea. Death doesn't win anymore. And that's ultimately what we're here to tell the world. That thing we thought was so permanent for everybody, the only thing surer than death and taxes, right? So at a tax collector's house, he, he walks out and proves that death isn't the real thing. You know, and then he says, still pay your taxes later on, right? We know that if our earthly house, 2 Corinthians 5, the tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house that's not made with hands. It's eternal to the heavens. For we who are in this tent being burdened, Lisa's feeling that today, and so is Steph, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortally we might be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing, God, who's also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. We are always confident, 
knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, and we walk by faith, not by sight. Right? That's the whole point. This thing we walk around in is temporary. It's a tent. We just sit in it for a little bit, praise the Lord. Someday we'll have new and resurrected bodies just like this little girl had. So we believe that because it's already happened under the power of Jesus. And then when Jesus says, I'm going to come back and get all of you, and you're all going to get new life, we believe it because we just watched him do it. And that's the, that's the belief, and th this gets right down to what Christianity is all about. So after the cowards challenge them, he just goes out and does it, right? And th so what are you going to do in that situation? Um, it, you know, that idea that in Leviticus 15, 15 is the passage that talks specifically about women's discharge, right? And that Numbers 19 talks specifically and says priests shouldn't touch dead people. He just went out and did both of them. The thing with the law is this, and this is where I think he's still following the law, and this is important. When they go to clean things, they're supposed to do it in running water. So when the cleansing happens, if you keep reading in both of those sections, being unclean isn't the point of the law. The law tells you how to renew yourself in cleanliness. And it usually has to do with washing and cleansing. So when you say Jesus or the Holy Spirit is the living water, that's a reference to the law. Because if I touched a dead thing, I would have to go to living water or moving water. Lakes get stagnant. They get algae and smelly. But a stream from a spring, you can drink that stuff. It's clean water. And when I wash my hands in clean water, the uncleanness goes downriver. And the water stays clean, and I'm clean too. I get cleansed by living water. And when Jesus does this, he's not destroying the law by breaking it. He's demonstrating the next step, which is, unless, of course, you're the cleaner, then I clean the dead person. And Jesus, I, not Sean, but I, Jesus, cleans the things that are dead. Right? And so when Jesus brings these situations to mind in front of the scribes and Pharisees, they know darn well what Leviticus 15 says and what Numbers 19 is. They do. And they're living under the law as though they have a human in front of them, and they don't. They have God Almighty in front of them who cleanses all of these things. So if they would just keep reading, they would see that there are ceremonies for cleansing. And those things are embodied in Jesus Christ. So when he touches the dead thing, he doesn't become dead. The dead thing becomes alive. It, the direction of the flow of water goes the other way. So when he's talking about the new wines and new wineskins, this is what he's talking about. It's a new game because God is now incarnate. So when John the Baptist's people come up and he says and does these things, one of the questions that had to come up is, okay, who are you going to follow? Are you going to follow Jesus who does this thing or aren't you? Are you still worried about fasting, <laughs> right, while the bridegroom's here? Like, don't you get this? So I'll keep going. Verse 26, and the report of this went out to all the land. Yeah, that happens, <laughs> Right? That's what's going to happen when this goes on. When Jesus departed, so he's leaving the house of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men follow up on him, crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he come into the house, the blind men came to him and said, came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. So, again, when Jesus departed from there, 
all three of these stories are tied together as a response to the why aren't you fasting question. And he's showing himself to be the bridegroom in each of these, um, in, in each of these situations. So he addresses the wine and the life with the dead person. He addresses the clothing with the tassels. And here he's addressing the fact that he's dealing with blind people, with blind people, right? And each one gets modeled in action. And in verse 27, like two blind men followed him in verse 27, and then they came to him. This isn't like when you, you have to just, this isn't satire and it's not trying to be comedy, but think of what Jesus just did there. He made blind people come to him. Like that had to be a, a tough trip. Blindness is super common in the ancient world. Bacterial infection, viral infection, sun scorching. They didn't have sunglasses. They didn't take care of their eyes and they lived in the Middle East. Tons of blindness in the ancient world. Very common problem. Just like spiritual blindness is showing up to be a common problem, right? So part of the question that John the Baptist put about the fasting and stuff is they just weren't seeing who Jesus was. Um, so this idea of following is what John the Baptist had instructed them to do, and now he's dealing with blind people, and, and we're getting them there. I think this is one of the things that we have to decide if we want to follow the world or if we want to follow Jesus. And we think of those people that are blind in our lives, and we think, man, if I could only get them to church, if I could just get them to a church, then they'll see. The problem with that is unless they come to Jesus, the blindness doesn't get cured. You can come to church and just hate the whole time. Right? The Pharisees did it. The scribes did it. Lots of people do it. If there's no change of heart, blindness doesn't get solved. And I think that what Jesus does here is really curious, right? So the idea of we know blind people spiritually, the idea is to get them to Jesus. And this story has tons of detail in it that helps with that. It's coming to Jesus is about in a lifestyle. It's not an event that we go to. And, it, it, and this idea of don't miss the main event. So Jesus has about 124 interactions with people throughout Matthew. Four of them are in a synagogue. Jesus meets people out in the world. He doesn't bring them to synagogue, right? It's not where you meet people or what event is happening. It's if that person's going to build a relationship with Jesus or not. And hopefully in church, we're teaching the word so they can at least hear the word and eyes can be opened. So I, I'm not saying don't invite people to church. I am saying... It's not just about getting people to church. It really is about a lift, about a, a desire to change how we live and who we follow. So that changes. So these interruptions that happen to Jesus seem to be part of what Jesus' ministry is. He just goes through life, and while this is happening, then this happens, and while he's on the way back from here, this person comes up. Like, while I went to the gas station, I talked to this person, then I went off to the grocery store, met somebody in the aisle, started talking about Jesus with them. Uh, was at a, a road construction spot and there was somebody with a sign. I'm just talking to them about their, where's your walk and who do you follow? And as Christians, that's part of how we identify who our brothers and sisters are. Are you a Jesus follower? You know, are, are you living your life for Jesus or just kind of words and stuff you do on a Sunday because your parents did, right? But the idea that we see Jesus just live in life and that's where most of his interactions happen, I think we should learn from that. This is the first time in the Bible that Jesus gets called the son of David. That's an interesting thing. He's been called son of God, son of man. But here it's son of David, which is in a re relation to the kingship, the throne of Israel. Um, so when he's called son of David, he's being called like an inheritor of the kingship when that's said. That would be really offensive to Jewish people. It says that they cry out. The other place where we saw that crying out were the demons in the graveyard. 
there's a loudness to these two blind people where they're crying out and they're saying, have mercy on us. Same kind of thing that demon, demon, demoniacs, demoniacs, how do you say that? Demoniacs. Same kind of thing they were saying, which is a really interesting contrast between how they're doing it. The intonation in the Greek here is that the focus isn't on worship at all. They're not worshiping Jesus and they're not worshiping God. They're, worship, they're asking a request and they're basically calling out. So when they say son of David, it's more like name calling. It's not an act of worship and the tone isn't in the writing for that. So Jesus acts with intention. They're giving him these flattering titles um, but Jesus, I think, wants them to come to faith. So he gets them out of the crowd. Do you see that? They're following him, uh, blind people following him, crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he comes to the house, the blind man came to him, and Jesus said, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? He didn't do it out in the crowd. He didn't do it on the street corner. He got him into a private place, had a private conversation, because it's not about doing a big fancy miracle in front of people. Jesus is about their hearts. It's just what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. So he wants a private one-on-one -on -one conversation with them. Who do you think that I am? Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Do you think I have the power to do this? So they go into the house. This could be Matthew's house where the party was, or it could be where Jesus was staying. Either way, that he just made blind people follow him by foot. <laughs> like, well, and then the other thing that in verse 30, and I... Their eyes were open and Jesus sternly warned them saying, see that no one knows this. That's not an, I looked it up in the Greek and he actually is making a reference to human sight. Like, so either he's playing a joke on them, like he's playing with them a little bit. Like, I want you to see this. Now that your eyes are open, see this, right? And he uses the language like, it's hilarious what he's doing here. Not hilarious if you're thinking this is kind of cruel that he's making blind people walk. But I think that's part of it, too. When he took the scribe and he said, I don't have a place to stay. Why are you coming? You know, we don't know if the scribe followed him or not. Jesus seemed to push people away sometimes because he knows their heart. And when, he, it, when they have to follow him, even though they got to stumble and struggle, that that struggle is part of what helps them come to Jesus. The stumbling is part of what helps them get there. And it says something about the heart when even when we're not perfect, we're willing to follow Jesus because even our imperfection is, is worth handing over to Jesus. To follow Jesus imperfectly is better than to follow anything else perfectly. And these, these blind people, I think, come to that place. So before they were following blindly, as John the Baptist's followers are, but now they're going to see this. Do you believe I'm able to do this? It's the question of the bridegroom that he's put into these two blind people in this intimate setting. He says, do you believe? Pistiou. Do you think it's true? Do you have faith Is in the Greek? This is the question of the book of Matthew. Do you believe Jesus? And they say yes, and now they say Lord, not Son of David. There's a, a, a relationship with the word Lord. Son of David is some abstract king, but Lord is somebody I choose to follow. Do you see the difference? And they say yes, Lord. And that is all that's needed. In the same way that Jesus just uses a word to heal, that's all he expects from us too, is allegiance, service, that desire to follow him. It's all that's needed. It doesn't have to be an elaborate, big, fancy prayer. Again, that's in the Sermon on the Mount too. Verse 29, according to your faith, we hear it again. People aren't cleansed because of their faith. Peter's mom was out cold, right? The dead girl was dead. So it wasn't her faith that gave her resurrection, right? 
But there is this idea that in some instances, God has mercy because he sees our heart. And when we come in humility, there's a chance for it. So you wonder how many people go unhealed because they never asked for it. Because sometimes when people ask for it, they get it. And it's not all the time. And I think that's, I'm not trying to say faith healers have, have a lot of legitimacy, right? But we can now see a pattern. Chapter 8, verse 1, the leper. Chapter 8, verse 5, the centurion with the super faith. In chapter 8, verse 23, the disciples with their baby faith. 918, the woman touching his robe. In each of these cases, Jesus responds to their faith. So sometimes when God heals, it's because he was asked to heal or to stop a storm or to do something. So he says, let it be to you. There is a connection here that's hard for us to get because there's so much teaching out there right now that there's nothing that we do that matters. There's this absolutist legalism that's out there. There is a relationship with God responding to us based on how we respond to him. And there is a causal relationship in some cases. God's got a will and a plan, and we're not in charge of that. Um, but, and we don't cause God to do anything through our words or actions. But God sometimes does things because he sees our hearts. So this is interesting because when God speaks, it's true. It's not just true now. It's true forever because God's word is truth. Capital T, truth. So his loving answer, let it be to you, is not just true for the blind people. It's true for everybody because God's word is true forevermore, beginning and end. He sternly warns him, verse 30. It means to straightly warn. It usually has a negative connotation. Jesus knows what's going to happen, so he's being very clear on this point with these two blind men. He says, see that, and, and again, this is funny because now they can see, and that's actually the Greek word for it. See that no one knows it. Why don't you see to the spiritual aspect of this now that you can physically see? So, Again, he's, he's not promoting himself. We don't see Jesus with a marketing plan here. You'd think he'd want people to know that he just healed blind people, but Jesus isn't about getting the attention. So they, they don't. They ignore him, and they go out in verse 32. Um, or, oh, so they, wait, I'm sorry. I'm on, I'm on the next verse. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. So they disobey him. So it's possible to be healed by God and then go off and disobey him. Um, and that's a, a, a thing that, is a terrifying concept sometimes. Verse 32, And they went out, behold, another look at this, they brought to him a man mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And again, 32 is as they went out. This is all connected. And, and when, they went, when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, it was never seen like this in Israel. Because this is a new wine. There's a new wineskin. Of course you've never seen this. But the Pharisees said he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Again, we're back to the Pharisees in verse 34. He's healing people, and they're angry with him. Like, this is confounding to anyone with a good heart, anyone with a soft heart in any level. It's like, wow, how does that happen? It happens because people get prideful. They think they're in charge. Jewish tradition for exorcisms, again in the Mishnah, is that you tricked demons. This is how Jewish people would do it. If you could get the demon to tell you its name, that name was like a handlebar. And you could grab the handlebar and force the demon to do whatever you want it to do. That was how you tricked demons to leave people. Okay, this is why there were a lot of demon-possessed people. <laughs> like, the, the, the Jewish rabbis had totally missed the point here. God allows or doesn't allow and can command demons to do whatever he wants. In the same way that death isn't a big deal to, to God, neither is a demon. Um, so you don't trick them. Uh, but when a demon has then made it so a person can't talk, 
and they're mute and demon-possessed, you couldn't find out their name. This is an unsolvable demon possession because if you can't get the handlebar, you can't trick the demon and get them out. So, so we get this idea of, um, in verse 33, it just says, and when. In this particular story, we don't even get what Jesus said. It's just that he cast it out. It's not, there's no show in Jesus' miracles. He says it, and it's done. It just happens. And the multitudes marveled. They marveled in Gergesenes too, but there they rejected Jesus. Here they marvel, and many of them are following Jesus. And it's never been seen like this, because this is how God works. So the blind can see, the mute can speak, but the physically healthy are both spiritually blind and dumb. Right? And that's what's going on. And you can see that there's this inside-out kind of contrast between the Pharisees and these people that follow the Lord. So the danger here is being a Pharisee that doesn't get that right. Um, when they say he's a, he casts out demons by the ruler of demons, in verse 34, the Pharisees commit an actual act of blasphemy, which is what they accuse Jesus of at the beginning of the chapter. So it actually comes full circle now. They actually are blaspheming God and calling God a demon. And they have put them, they've, they've become guilty of what they were accusing others of. Judge not lest you be judged. You're going to be judged according to what you do. Um, so again, that's the Sermon on the Mount teaching. And then here we see it in action. Jesus went out, went about all the cities and villages, verse 35, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the kingdom, gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. When it says Jesus went about to all the cities, that should sound familiar because if you flip back to chapter 4, verse 23, it's an identical word-for-word verse that we saw right before the Sermon on the Mount. This is the end of a section in ancient writing. So... 423 and 935 are identical verses, and that's because we're reaching the end of this section here. But the the principal idea is brought back about. Have we seen Jesus teach? Yep, the Sermon on the Mount. Did we see him preaching the gospel of the kingdom? Yep, the Sermon on the Mount. Has he healed every sickness and every disease amongst the people? Matthew's done his level best to show us every sickness and disease and kinds that could be handled, and Jesus handles all of them. The mute, the blind, leprous, um, all of it. Even Matthew. Even Matthew, the text collector, got healed. So Jesus does healing, and he's moved with compassion. We see the character of God in verse 36 at the end of it all. After all this happens, the point Matthew brings us back to is what Jesus looked out and saw is that there was no shepherds. This is a sad note, notation on the Jewish, on the rabbinical heritage that they had there. They, they clearly have rulers. They have the Romans. They have the Pharisees bossing them around. But they're not worth anything. And at the end of the day, they don't have a shepherd. Um, this isn't a new image. Numbers 27, 17 says the congregation of the Lord, may, the God doesn't want the congregation of the Lord to be like sheep that don't have a shepherd. So Jesus is, or Matthew's quoting the Old Testament when he says this. But God's will is for the people to have a shepherd, somebody who knows where to go and how to get there. But what Jesus sees in verse 4 are evil hearts. Verse 13, total ignorance of the word of God. Verse 17, an inflexible, ineffective attitude with no power. And in verse 34, they're blasphemers. That's what Jesus runs into. In essence, they don't have leaders. 
So the conflict between Jesus and the disciples is going to grow. The conflict between the legalists and the Christians continues to grow to this day. It's the battle that's out there. Most people will listen and hear and even enjoy the multitudes love what Jesus is doing, but the people who think they're in control hate what Jesus is doing because he's telling them they can just throw it off. And when you got Matthew, the tax collector, just walking away from the Roman Empire, people are actually throwing off the chains of oppression under Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. So when that actually happens, yeah, the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders are going to get upset with that. These people don't think that we're in charge. And they're like, nope, you're not. So verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful, the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. A lot of people take this verse as a missionary verse. But we haven't been doing missions in the last two chapters, or even the Sermon on the Mount, right? Yes, it applies to missions. I don't want to take that away from people that love this verse. But the idea here is that Jesus sees the leadership is gone amongst the people. True spiritual leadership, honest, trustworthy, humble hearts, there's nobody to lead them. And what's left is that Jesus needs disciples that can be raised up to actually lead those. This is not just world missions. This is church. This is going over to the ruler's house during the weekday. This is having a party at Matthew's house. These are the events that set up that verse. These are local things in Jesus' hometown that aren't happening. Spiritually, nobody's there to lead them. So Jesus comes in and he provides them a new way and a new kingdom, and he wants to send them out to send out into the laborers into the harvest, in the Greek, that's a forceful language that's being used. They get pushed out or driven out. So shepherds actually use their canes to whack some sheep now and then. We're going this way and sends directions. When he tells them to get in the boat, he commands them to get in the boat. Jesus is, wants to be in charge not as a fluffy best friend. He wants to be in charge as God of the universe. And he wants servants to go out in mercy because that's what he desires to go help people find forgiveness and healing from what ails them, even Matthew the tax collector. So when we align with God's will, we need to be praying things like he's asking his disciples to pray here. And I think it's interesting that Jesus, Jesus says to his disciples, this is what I want you to pray for. Because they're right there, like they could talk to Jesus and that's kind of praying. But he's telling them this is the practice I want to see. Pray the Lord of the harvest. That's an image of Boaz and Ruth, by the way just want to make that connection um, the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest the whole idea is God needs people on earth to be helping him do his work that's what he's asking for and if we want to be praying that we should then I think it's artful how Jesus has them pray it because when you pray for things your will aligns to what you pray for because I just prayed for that so it's one the first step I think in becoming one of those laborers in the harvest and that's where the book of Matthew goes next Jesus starts teaching these disciples how to do it. I think the next chapter is the list of disciples that actually stuck around after all this stuff. So he goes from multitude down to just a few people. <laughs> like That's not a big group. That's a smaller group of people than we have at the Sunday night Bible study. right? And that's who Jesus, instead of working with multitudes, he just works with people and turns them into warriors for the kingdom. And it's beautiful. Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, thank you that you showed us and revealed to us the truth of your character and your kingdom in ways we could understand it. We don't, Lord, we are, you made us and you know how we work and how we tick and thank you for these stories. 
Thank you for the reality of your healing that you made it obvious. Thank you for Matthew, who humbly started writing things down and keeping track of it all. Thank you for the intention he put into helping us see what you taught him and the way he put together his gospel and how he did it. Thank you for inspiring him, Lord. We see your Holy Spirit in every word and and your hand in this text and in this writing. Lord, we want to serve you. And and Lord, we don't want to be Pharisees. So we see this chapter. We saw all these people that think evil in their hearts and gossip and talk behind bed. These cowards, Lord, help us to never be that way. Help us to boldly proclaim your name that we're not running behind people's backs and saying things and thinking things in our heart that are negative. Lord, help us to just be people that are faithful and good and holy. Help us to go back to our homes like the, like the paralytic and to tell our family about it. Help us to go to our friends and the people at work like Matthew, the tax collector. Um, and Lord, help us to tell the world about it like the blind people when you tell us to, to go. Um, Lord, we know that what you do in our life is, is supposed to be shared. So help us to share starting in the home with our friends and family, the people we know, and help us to just live it and to be um, your servants, Lord. And teach us how to do that. Teach us how to be your disciples. And help us to come to you with a humble and a broken heart. We love you, Lord. We lift your name on high. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.